Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. Such a special show today. My good friends Zoe Rome and Tina Muir are here on the podcast. They have a new book out, Becoming a Sustainable Runner, A Guide to Running for Life, Community, and Planet. I was blown away by this book. I knew the how just how invested they are in sustainability from a planet perspective. And that's what I thought this book was going to be about, as you'll hear in this episode. But it was far more than that when I had the chance to sit down and read it. And thank you to Tina and Zoe for sending this out to me. We actually recorded this about a month ago. And so much of it is not just merely about sustaining, you know, sustaining the planet, which is obviously a huge topic in and of itself, but becoming a runner who can run sustainably, meaning that you can continue running and running at a high level for a long time. And also building a community around that so that it maximizes your own performance and the performance of others. This book is so comprehensive. I was blown away. They did a fantastic job. In this episode, we touch on all three elements of the book, and I think you'll really get into it, even if you're someone who maybe isn't as um, you know green conscious as Zoe and Tina are. Um, you're going to find a lot about this episode and this book that is going to help you as a person and as an athlete. There is no question about that. So before we get into it, I do want to say, if you're looking for a coach, I am taking new runners. I had a bunch of people reach out to me after I did a little, little uh, podcast ad last week. I usually don't talk about my coaching um, in this perspective from it, from an advertising uh, spot. But at the same time, I do it and it's a valuable part of my life. And the fact of the matter is that I feel like I've been able to help athletes achieve not only running sub three hours in the marathon as a master's runner, but people run a brand new marathon or breaking four hours or breaking five hours. And even if, you know, marathons aren't your thing, helping people break two hours in the half and stuff like that, all this has been huge. In fact, one of my athletes, uh, she's building up to run a marathon, her first marathon this fall. She ran 14 miles last weekend. First time ever, her longest run ever. And it was so gratifying to, to build up to that point. We ran a half a few months ago and, and you know, things are, are progressing and like that sort of thing. I love so no matter what level you are. Again, I work with masters runners who break three hours, some of the best masters runners in the country. In addition to that, I'm helping other athletes run their first marathon. So all ends of the spectrum. It is so enjoyable for me. You can email me at rambling runner podcast. That's rambling runner podcast at Gmail. Com. You can also shoot me a message over on Instagram, rambling underscore runner. We can talk about the steps so that I can help you. And also, if you just want to hop on the call to see if I'm a good fit, I also do that because choosing a coach can be tough. And I want to make it as simple and easy as possible to make sure that it's a good fit for you. And if it's not, hey, we'll find a coach that is because there's a lot of good coaches out there and I'm, I'm here for you. So with all of that being said, let's get into it with Zoe Rome and Tina Muir. All right, Tina and Zoe, thank you so much for coming back on the Rambling Runner podcast. So excited to be back and with my bestie, Tina. Neither of you are strangers to the podcast, Arena. Uh, that is for sure. Tina, you're one of the most prolific running podcasters in history. And Zoe, you have done maybe the best running podcast of all time with mm-hmm. DNF to say nothing of your other um, projects that you have both worked on. So thank you so much for coming on. Speaking of other projects today, we're talking about your new book. Becoming a Sustainable Runner, A Guide to Running for Life, Community, and the Planet with a three-person podcast. It always gets tricky. Like, who is Matt addressing? Who is going to talk first? So I'm going to try to like, hey, hey, Tina, XYZ. Zoe, here's a question for you. And then we can kind of bat things back and forth. Uh, Zoe, you are an accomplished writer. You've been doing this for a long time. So I guess I'll start with Tina. Tina, what made you want to dip your toe into the writing industry? 
Well, I have a lot to say. I mean, I think that's kind of clear for anyone who knows me. Um, when people say about uh, being concise about things for a book, I'm not great at doing that. But um, I, I think, and maybe Matt, you can you can agree with this or maybe not. I think I have a way of speaking and a way of writing that um, is very conversational, and um, it is something that hopefully gets people to feel. Um, a shared interest to pay attention to listen because I very much write in the same way that I speak um, and uh, but I knew that I couldn't do this alone because there were so many things that while I'm we were saying Zoe and I were joking yesterday about like she's very good at um, bringing all this am amazing knowledge and information and, and getting these points across and I kind of dumb it down to a level that people can take it and digest because I just don't have the, um, uh, I, I don't know, the skills, I guess, to be able to, to talk eloquently and write eloquently. So it was such, us writing together is such a beautiful balance of me being very a bit too conversational, Zoe maybe, and maybe you can correct me, Zoe, being a little too um, articly at times. And we just met in the middle and it, it worked really well. So, um, I'd always wanted to write a book, but I knew I like with this kind of topic, I wanted to do it with someone. And Zoe was the immediate person that that came to mind. That didn't really answer your question, but it kind of did in a roundabout way. I think I think we got there. I think it also <laughs> illustrated. The, I think it also illustrated the it point that you were trying to make in the in the answer, <laughs> yeah, which is exactly. great, right? Two birds with <laughs> yeah. one stone on that one. And I will say, um, to give some background perspective, Tina and I approach this exactly the same, where we don't like to send text messages back and forth. We send audio clips back and mm -hmm. forth because both of us hate writing at all times. So when you reply to me, excuse me, when I reply, that is correct. Last which time is not you always didn't the reply best. to me. To be fair. I reply to you more than I reply to my dad. So if I, so he's still, I think he's waiting for a reply right now, actually on something. Um, so, uh, I'm, I'm right with you on that one. Um, so in terms of like the genesis of this book, I know this is a topic um, that both of you have been you know, passionate about for a long time. Tina, you talk about it all the time on your podcast. Your, po your podcast has pivoted over the years, gearing itself more towards the, these topics um, and maybe away from kind of like the, the professional running scene that you first um, you know, were a part of. And so you've certainly done a lot of work on this as a freelance writer and then working for outside and now someone who's in a managerial editorial role. So, so when did this idea manifests itself beyond just, hey, these are a great topic for, you know, a, a month long process in terms of like the, the work that you're doing or feature stories and become kind of book worthy in that sense. Yeah. So it actually kind of felt like returning home for me. My graduate degree was in environmental journalism from CU. So that is like, that is my academic expertise. Um, but I was always interested in marrying that with my interest in sports and the outdoors. I spent time in Alaska reporting on sled dog racing and the intersection of sled dog racing and climate issues in rural Alaska. So like, this is a topic that I've been circling around for my whole life. And in ways, writing about trail running is a departure for me like writing about just sports is kind of straying from my my background experience and so this book felt like a really natural way of marrying my academic background with like where my heart's at lately like what i think about in my spare time what i talk about with my friends the activism i'm engaged in in my community and i've always been really interested and i think tina does this so well in her work in translating that um 
like ways to get engaged, ways to be active for like meeting people where their hearts are in the sport. Like sport is kind of this like lovely little gushy opening for people where you can really reach them in a way that is meaningful and matters and tugs on their heartstrings and moves them to action. So Tina and I actually met on Twitter bonding about our love (laughs) of composting. (laughs) Um, And I just immediately knew like, this is someone who is really interested in being held accountable and like someone who is really interested in making sure their actions are in alignment with their political goals and in their, in their environmental values. And this is someone I'm really interested in collaborating with and learning how to tailor and moderate my own communication so that it can reach and engage a new audience. Because I think I've been speaking to the same people a good bit. And Tina is really amazing at not preaching to the choir and bringing new people into this conversation. And I think overall, that was one of our biggest goals with the book. Zoe, you're such a good pro. I, I, it's almost like I sent you the notes beforehand because <laughs> you led me right into the next question about- I have rigged this. <laughs> you, you know, you're so good at this. This is for, this is for sure. Um, so you bring up a great point, And this is where I want to get to next about the audience for something like this, right? When someone puts together any kind of project like this, you have to have an idea of like, who is this for? It doesn't have to be overly specific, but you have to have a general idea. You have to know who you're writing for. And also that kind of illuminates the kind of context you need to provide certain things, right? If you're running, if you're writing like, for instance, like a running book based on like, here's how to do professional workouts aimed at professional runners. You don't need to, to tell them what tempo means. But if it's for a beginning runner, like you're probably gonna spend a good amount of time deciphering what does tempo actually mean and the different variations therein. So Tina, as you guys were going through this process, especially early on, you know, you know, really trying to outline what this is for and who is it for, what was that process like and really trying to nail that down? I think the my answer here is going to be a little bit different to what people might expect. So obviously the planet with the title with what Zoe and I have said so far is a big chunk of this book. It's a third, maybe a little bit more than a third. The middle, commun- the middle section, the middle third is about community. And the first third is about uh, individuals like having a lifelong relationship with running that is healthy. And so as I thought about this my own self, all that kept coming to mind for me were those people who I'd been trying to speak to for the last five, 10 years, which are the people the avatar essentially that kept coming to mind for me and and Zoe it's slightly different because she comes from a slightly different world but for me was the the person who is and we know Matt you and I know many of these the person who is desperate for a BQ who is banging their head against a wall trying to run a BQ over and over and over again um because they so badly want this and they feel like once they get this then they'll be happy the first third talks to that part of that person. The middle third invites that person to open up a bit more their world so that it's not just about goals and races, but it's about mentoring. And And when I say mentoring, I don't mean like just because Zoe and I have run at a high level mentoring. I mean, anyone, any one of us has something that a new runner could learn. Uh, volunteering, giving back, finding ways. And then the planet side of things, the people that are in that pursuit are often people who have a very conscious mindset towards things. They want to do better. They they wish that they could do things, but they don't know what to do. And they are made to often feel like they're a terrible human who can't, who is just like destroying our planet, but they want to do something. And so for me, that was what kept coming to mind is that person um, and how we can make that person not only 
yes, maybe get your BQ, but get it in a way that is not so like, I've got to get my BQ because once I do that, then I finally belong in the running world. Um, but doing it from a more well-rounded, wholesome perspective. So yeah, that for me was who I kept in mind um, and, uh, you know, tried to write towards um, because I knew that person needed to hear this, hear this message. Yeah, that first of all, let me just say, as someone who knows both of you pretty well, I was expecting this book to be a certain thing. And it certainly was that in a lot of ways. But the first chapter was much more robust than I was expecting in terms of like, it felt like it could be its own book in a way. And it actually had like kind of a shades of Happy Runner with from David and mm. Megan Roche. Like I think it had, you know, so kind of a similar vibes. It certainly written very differently, but has similar vibes to that book in terms of like, hey, this is how that you can, um, anyway, it's obvious that the word sustainable was used in the title, not simply for the planet reason, right? And I assumed going in that that was, that was the reason for that word. And I was absolutely incorrect. So I, I really loved how you, you put that in there. And it was a choice that I wasn't expecting. So talk to me about the choice of having the you know, personal running piece, the communal running piece, and then the planet piece and why this book wanted to have all three pieces in it as opposed to gearing it towards one side or the other or something like that, I guess. Um, Zoe, I'll, ask, I'll send this one your way. Yeah, so it's our belief that you can't truly achieve sustainability in any one arena without working towards it in all these arenas. Your individual health can't exist in a context where your community doesn't have health. The planet's health can't exist in a context where you're not nurturing your own health. Like all of these things are integrated and all depend on each other and they're just kind of overlapping valences of a similar issue. And like, I can't attend to my community if I'm not attending to myself. Likewise, if I only attend to myself and I don't attend to my community, that's that's not true nurturing, that's not true health, that's not real growth. So it's kind of understanding that all these things are necessarily interrelated and depend on each other and trying to make that case for someone who maybe has been um, pursuing just one and understanding that like, yes, like you can, you must, it is necessary that you, that you work in service of all of these things at the same time. Um, they're all interrelated. They're all integrated, but like you can and should like to achieve your potential in running, you must also be working for climate action to, um, to serve the climate in the way that you're best able, you probably also really need to be taking care of your own health and taking care of your community. And so we just really wanted to make the case that these things do not exist in vacuums. They are all connected. And when athletes are able to integrate all of these parts of their of their lives and their community and their climate work, they're going to approach the sport and approach this work in a really different way. Yeah, I'm going to ask this question of both of you because you both um, have great experiences with this and also share uh, your experiences in the book about this topic. And that is being able to dissociate yourself from your running performances. Again, your running histories are very different, but they're both you both are very accomplished runners at the same time. So I guess, Zoe, just staying with you for now, talk to me about that process for you of, of you know, again, like I said before, just like that, that achievement mindset within running being able to step away from it while not lessening your potential and not saying, okay, well, I guess I'm just not going to care about running goals anymore, but being able to kind of like emotionally, you know, create this divide or however you want to phrase it between um, this egocentric view of it. 
Yeah, for sure. And I think that, yeah, using even the phrase egocentric, I think is a great way to deconstruct kind of my journey on this is making sure to, to, uh, to use a phrase from uh, Ultra Runner Addie Bracey, hold it lightly. I don't want to be completely dissociated from the outcome. The outcomes do matter to me. The outcomes give me a platform. The outcomes give me a community. The outcomes give me some amount of an identity, but I can't hang my entire hat on those outcomes. I need to be able to say like, you know what? That was a bad race. That doesn't define me. It's a thing I did. It's not who I am. Um, And I think that being able to engage in climate work also helped me see, again, that these things are interrelated, but I don't have to be entirely invested in having only an athletic identity. I can still like see my work as a climate journalist, as an environmental journalist and an environmental steward as being an integral part of my of who I am and also part of my athletic identity. And I think knitting those things together helps all of those parts become a bit more stable and they help feed off each other in a way that I think is really positive and productive because like in climate work there's a lot of bad days there's a lot of days where you're just banging your head against a wall there's a lot of days where you're fielding really negative feedback from people who don't understand um, the essential nature of the work there's a lot of days where you're questioning yourself and you're questioning your own approach and being able to re-engage with another part of that identity really helps come back to the climate work and be more fulfilled, be more engaged, be more heart forward. Um, and being able to like be a part of the community as well. And so I think that it is just about, yeah, understanding these things are interrelated, but none of them represents like the, like the, the singularity of, of who I am as a person and being able to fail in all these arenas has been really help helpful and healthy for me. Um, and then being able to come back to them and move forward imperfectly. And how about you, Tina? Yeah. I mean, I want to point out that one of the things when Zoe was talking there about working in climate, about having good days and bad, about how struggling through, I mean, you could easily take out the word climate and insert running in there. We know how that feels. We do that. And that's a point we make in the book that these two things, while many of your listeners might put Zoe and I in a box of like, oh, those environmental activists are so extreme. I think a big key thread throughout the book is we share a lot of our failures as we as we said we talk a lot about burning out ourselves and even we will both admit at times writing the chapters in the book about not burning yourself out we were doing the exact this was thing. literally like, the last question i was going to ask you it was going to be on that, that exact point <laughs> uh sorry i've ruined that but we no it's, we, it's great because it's but it's, it's a valid question right i mean yeah even in the acknowledgments Zoe hints at it. She's like, thank you, David Roche, for like basically walking me off the ledge. Yeah. And that's so like a lot of this is climate as a whole can seem so intimidating as can running like someone, people who can run to Zoe and I's level. It can look like, oh, they're just like superhuman. Like I um, am very close to uh, Ryan Montgomery, who just finished. uh, We're releasing this in a little bit, but. Uh, who finished seventh at Western States, uh, eighth overall. And um, I, watching Ryan, I was inspired, but it didn't make me feel like I could do 100 miles. I'm just like, you're a superhuman. I can't do that. Right. Um, it made, it and made so, me feel the opposite. Like, I definitely can't run 100 miles. Well, Watch that's what I'm Ryan saying. I could, I'm, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying <laughs> I, you, that should have inspired me, but instead it made right. me think, no, I just can't even imagine doing that. 
Um, but my point is that, so we try and show throughout the book that we have made these mistakes. We have tied our identity to running. We have um, made running everything like just me and my running and I don't want anyone else um, rather than being a part of the community. We also live in the same world. And I use this example often, but Zoe and I both have the experience of when we come across someone like at a race or somewhere and they're holding a plastic bottle they're like uh um uh, uh I, I i i got this yesterday and um I, i've been refilling it and I, I i didn't want it but i was given it and we're like it's okay we live in the same world as you plastic bottles are a part of this world we're not like we wish uh, you know bean patty police like so you're, you're, you're not like you're not carrying the red paint and throwing on people wearing fur coats <laughs> no, type, type exactly vibes. yeah <laughs> no so this whole thing whole book hopefully is showing people that like climate can be for you and that doesn't have to mean you go stand and protest the banks down at your downtown uh, at your town hall or whatever or downtown or whatever the term would be um but you can take a vegetarian sausage to a cookout and say i'm trying to eat meatless once a week so i brought these vegetarian sausages we're not saying go vegan we're saying like what can you do so we really tried to do that and our identity and running is a part of that that we both have been wrapped up in but as has as have each of the other areas we've made mistakes so i hope that comes across i think it does but um yeah we've we've both been attached to our identities too much we both burned ourselves out we've both tried to run through major life changes and not successfully done it and then been like why didn't that work out um so so yeah for sure yeah, let, let, let me just focus one more thing on the running piece before we move to the next the next piece. Because I know that, th and this is something that I struggle with, I know a lot of people do, I'm sure you guys do too, in that, and you touched on this early on in chapter one, both the acceptance piece and the comparison piece and the interrelation between those two, where when, I know, let me put it in my, in my own perspective, and I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on how you've dealt with this sort of thing. So whenever I'm kind of like, all right, I'm going I'm I'm to be self-accepting, and I'm also not going to compare. I also feel like I'm letting myself off the hook to like not pursue like the best I can be. Like I feel like when I do those two things, this other third thing hops in like the back of the car and goes for the ride too. Instead of like, no, 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 we're still we're still going to work hard. You stay over there. Like we're still going to try to compete and be my best athletic self. But I I want to not compare myself and, and love myself at the same time. But that other piece always kind of comes for the ride. So it's hard for me to do those two things without also like self-sabotaging my own performance in this, in the, in under the guise of self-acceptance. Mm -hmm. Right. So how have, I guess, Tina, I'll start with you, especially after you're, after leaving professional running and now, you know, having your own um, journey with running after that, how have you managed that juggling act? I mean, of course you feel that way of course we all feel that way that's what we're told right is no pain no gain you're told you know david what's his name oh david goggins him. goggins that's it like that's kind of the pinnacle right yes yeah. <laughs> like david goggins is like what you're supposed to be doing like you're supposed to crawl across the finish line and i have crawled across the finish line before and it did not feel good was not worth it um <laughs> but like you're supposed to do that. And so when I quit elite running, I felt, and I, Matt, I'm not sure if you would have remembered me talking about this. Like I felt like 
Uh, no one would ever be interested in anything I had to say because why would they? Like, you're a has-been, you're a quitter, you get away from me. Like, I want to learn from the actual people who stuck it out. So of course you feel that way. Of course we all do. In movies, and we talked about this in the book, in movies we're told that, like, you know, the the inspiring scene in movies where the football coach is like, you will get out there and you will do this. And so we think that the best way to like motivate ourselves is to yell at ourselves. Um, and to, and that, yeah, like if you don't have that voice that you're gonna like slack off, but actually there's so much research that has found the opposite, that the more we give ourselves that love and understanding, the, the more we can do it because we're doing it for the right reasons. We're not doing it because of, um like almost like avoiding shame um which doesn't motivate anyone and so uh we're conditioned to feel that way but that's the point we're trying to make is that you don't we don't need to be that actually uh is 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 a lie so yeah gotcha Zoe, do you want to add to that yeah i think for me a big thing that comes up is building self-awareness and leaning into what feels hard to me because I, I don't want to like glorify this as being like the gold standard, but it's like very easy for me to David Goggins myself. Like that is kind of the background and context I came from. That's kind of my default. So it's actually very difficult for me to lean into self-compassion. There will be other people where maybe like coming from the more Brene Brown side of things, like they need to understand, like have the self-awareness to understand, is this, am I holding myself accountable to my potential? Am I using self-compassion as a mask for not getting vulnerable and not achieving what I'm capable of? And it just takes, it takes messing up. It takes getting it wrong and building self-awareness so that you can understand like, oh, am I actually being really hard on myself as a means of not being vulnerable? Or am I going too easy on myself as a means of not of, of not getting vulnerable and doing the thing that feels hard to me and doing the thing that feels scary to me. And that will feel different for everyone. I think a lot of people in this sport tend to come from the more like David Goggins side of things. And we're all working towards that like sweet spot in the middle that is self-awareness and holding yourself accountable to your potential and understanding that that's just going to look different for other people. And I think that the way that like I talk about this with other athletes, is just different because I'm a different person and I need to not judge other folks like because they come from a different context or their use of self-compassion and accountability looks different in their own athletic lives. And I think that this is something that's also really applicable to climate is that a lot of times we will lean on these narratives that excuse us from pursuing our goals imperfectly. Yeah, well, well said. And I think that also kind of depends on like your starting point too, right? Like yeah. If someone who's been like unmotivated for a decade, like, of course, they're probably going to attract more of the David Goggins size of the range because they're like, I have been unmotivated. I need to work harder, right? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use this as like my own personal running coach to be like, okay, you need to work harder. That is objectively true. This person's going to inspire me. Whereas, like, someone who maybe is on the other end, like, hey, self compassion, like, you work hard enough. Like, you need to have some self compassion, where, like, it kind of depends on that. And, but the way you both approach it in this book, I think, really speaks to that. And I know it's something that so many people struggle with. With that said, especially talking about the, the confluence of both the running side and the, um, you know, the, the plant sustainability side here, is the, the perfectionism that comes with it. And you talk about the perfectionism side on here uh, in the book, really early on in the book, actually. And this idea of like, oh, don't let perfectionism stop you from from what's going to happen. And I think for running, it can be like, it'd be more metrics based. With climate, it seems to be like more confusion based <laughs> of like, okay, yeah. like, 
wait, is plastic recycling even real? Like sometimes yeah. I hear like that. That's no. that's a myth, right? And you have other things where it's like, all right, well, does this is this helpful? Is that helpful? And you're like, and it it can just be a lot, and mm-hmm. it can be easy. Like, okay, I'm confused. I'm just going to shut my brain off and just kind of go, you know, let's say may let's say fare my uh, way through this whole thing. So I guess with that in mind, um, I guess I'll, I'll address this to Tina first. As you've kind of gone through your own journey through, you know, embracing climate activism and sustainability and things like that, how have you approached, like, not letting perfect be the enemy of of good um, mm-hmm. in your own in your own way of of going through the world? Well, before I answer that, I do want to say that the confusion piece is intentional. Um, it is a political strategy. <laughs> Yeah, so we they want us to feel confused. Um, those who are in power, who want to stay in power, yeah, political. Uh, the I mean, we mentioned this point many times in the book. Seventy one percent of global emissions come from one hundred companies, so they want us to point fingers at each other, not at them. Um, but to answer your actual question, um, it was about perfectionism, right? No, yes, yeah, it was in about terms perfectionism, but also making sure that like not hoping that like, hey. I don't know what I'm, I'm so confused. I'm not sure what to do. And just be like, ah, oh, screw mm. it. Like, whatever. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like th- wash my hands of it. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think most people who know of me in the community know that I am someone who like, I don't really have a problem of like, I don't know if you both saw the video of me crying um, that I put up when my parents left that <laughs> like, I don't have a problem with showing things that are very vulnerable. Um, but that said, with environmentalism, with speaking about that, I only started speaking about that in the fall, maybe the summer of 2022. And that was because um, even Zoe and I fall to this, that we are very much painted the picture that to be, and I hope we got this point across early on, to be to be considered an environmentalist to care, you have to be sailing across the Atlantic. You have to become vegan overnight. You have to... Um, make all these very extreme decisions that are quite frankly terrifying and if the world if the world did them the world would crumble like it literally couldn't handle it um the changes but so i didn't want to say anything because i felt like i didn't have um a political science degree uh was a environmental science degree i didn't have um the experience i wasn't uh able to uh, do all these things. I wasn't able to say I'm never going to fly again when my family lives in the UK and I live in the US. So I was too scared to say anything too for a long time because I didn't want people to point fingers at me and say, you hypocrite. Um, but once I started speaking out about it through a 100 days of sustainability thing I did where I just threw something up there and often it was grabbing the camera. You probably both saw at least one of these where I like threw up the camera, spoke into it, went publish. Didn't let myself edit it I just published and that was really forcing myself in at the deep end this is not going to be perfection I am going to be rambling as is perfect for this podcast um and I'm just going to do something and then I've mentioned this before that on day eight is when the Chicago Marathon reached out to me so that was a sign that you're doing the right thing because people just need to hear something um and uh, need to feel that they can be a part of the solution, not a part of the problem. So, yeah, I just went in the deep end one day, uh, thanks to my friend Elizabeth. I want to touch on that uh, again mm. because Seth Godin said the same exact thing before he published um, the Carbon Almanac, 
Right. So mm-hmm. he was part of the, the crew that put together the Carbon Almanac. And he was saying, like, hey, I put out a, it was like, I think it was 12 years ago. He, you know, part of his daily blog, he did a small little thing. Again, as all of his blog posts are like between 150 and 200 words, you know, if that sometimes. And one of them was on, you know, was on the climate. I forget exactly what the post was. But afterwards, he received the 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 response was like wasn't great, and it was it was funny because the response the response that wasn't great wasn't from people who disagreed with him. The response that wasn't great was for the people who agreed with him, but like, hey, you should have said this and this, and you should have taken to this extent. And it was like the people who were ally he was supposed to try and be allies with, and he was like, never again. <laughs> it's like I'm I'm done. He didn't do another one for a decade. Right. And this is a guy who just wrote, who just published the Carbon Almanac, for God's sakes. Like, he mm-hmm. obviously was invested in this, but it wasn't the people who disagreed with them that threw him off the scent. It was the people who agreed with him. But it was like, oh, it was kind of like you're in that conversation with someone, you're talking about something, and you're like immediately, immediately made to feel like an idiot because you don't know the topic as well as the other people in the conversation. So, how did you make sure, because your book does not do this, how did you make sure that that didn't happen in this book when this is one of those topics where oftentimes this sort of thing happens, where the talking down to and you're not you're not enough to be as to be part of this club and to be talking about this topic. Zoe, I guess I'll start yeah. with you here. I think this is a really fun part because this is where like the super boring data really shows that like if you were an executive at ExxonMobil, like obviously you want every like well-intentioned liberal squalling uh, squabbling over like reusable straws you know like that is an ideal political climate for you to continue to extract the bejesus you know out of this planet and understanding that like the impacts of how we message around these things can activate or deactivate new audiences like i'm really interested in the research around climate communication and how you spread the message and how you understand the message how that impacts how people engage on this for instance i think like the media tends to misrepresent how many people are quote unquote climate deniers less than six percent of americans fall into that category most people understand that this is an issue but feel confused feel unseen, unheard, unspoken to in this conversation. How do we reach those people? I don't need that 5%. They're useless to me. What I want are the people who understand that this is a problem, but don't know how to get involved, don't understand how it impacts them, or haven't felt that the movement has intentionally understood their um, their their ability to engage on this or like how it impacts them or what matters to them. And I think that we were really, really conscious that we wanted to be evidence-based in this. And the evidence shows that being nitpicky and being gatekeepy is not, like that does not produce like positive change. You know, like I love Greta Thunberg, get it girl but like we don't all need to be on solar yachts we don't all need to drop out of school we do need some people to do that and i'm glad that she's doing that but a lot of us need to stay in school and get an education so that we can engage in the climate in a different way some of us need to fly to utmb so that we can talk to people one-on-one about these issues Um, and i know that some of those things will feel hypocritical to folks who haven't done the research and who haven't been engaged in this topic for very long but the real ones know that this is all very nuanced and it's messy and it's complicated and you should always be skeptical of someone who tries to oversimplify and who tries to isolate in this conversation yeah and we also don't have to be dakota jones who you know god love him wrote us like (laughs) 650 miles to the start line of Western States this past weekend. Again, he took took a train home. You know, yeah. so, which, 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 also, which shows cool. you both sides of it. 
Yeah. I mean, and like the thing was like, he did it to, it wasn't just to take the, you know, carbon of one plane trip out of the air. It was to raise money for footprints, right? Which is an organization that impacts like that has massive ripple effects. So like, it's kind of a large scale action disguised as like that uses the small scale action as the hook, because that's how our brains work. Like, I love the story of someone biking to Western States. Uh, I get bored as soon as I have to like learn about, you know, people learning at a camp together, right? So it's like understanding how our brains work, hijacking those systems to bring people into the conversation in a way that appeals to them and meets them where they're at. Right. And Tina, when when oftentimes people start thinking about this topic, and again, I'll speak for myself instead of like projecting onto other people, it can be like, okay, I know I'm not going to be doing enough. I know I'm not going to do enough. And so you, you when you go into that, go into a topic thinking like that right from the get-go, I feel like it, it creates this self-limiting behavior like right from the start. How can people make sure that when they go into this, they're not just starting from a period, just starting from a pers- a perspective of like, okay, I'm already not enough. And again, you talked about it from the running piece right in the first chapter. You spent a lot of time cultivating that. How can we take what we learned from the running chapter and move it towards the, st- the, the plant sustainability chapter where we approach this topic the same way we approach running in terms of like building our base and growing slowly and being kind to ourselves through the process yeah i I think the first thing to recognize uh, i mentioned this earlier but is that like we all live in the same world or or in this case you know many of your listeners live in the us here and the system is not set up to um help you be successful so you take yogurt you're like I want to pick the most sustainable yogurt you go to the store maybe there's one glass option if you live in um I don't know in San Diego or in Austin Texas but the rest of us not in Coventry Rhode Island no plastic tubs plastic tubs so like recognizing that like no matter how much unless it requires a privilege to have the time to make your own yogurt. So yes, you could technically do that, but how long does, I don't even know how to make yogurt, but I imagine it's quite an extensive and long process. Um, And so recognizing that we all live in this same world um, and as much as people want like a, and Zoe, this is where people often come to Zoe and I, like give me five things I can do to be more sustainable. I'm sorry to tell you, the biggest thing you can do is talk about it. And that's it, like with your family. That's not telling, hey, dad, um, did you know that 71% of emissions come from 100 of the companies in the world? Like your dad's going to switch off. Let's use the uncle example. Um, But it is saying about, yeah, I'm going meatless one day a week just to cut down on um, my climate impact. Or maybe it's I'm, oh, I noticed you're biking to work now. Yeah, I'm trying to do that so that it cut, uh, it's less driving, which is emissions. Although actually funny, quick side note, I ran my stroller to the farmer's market one day or this market um, in my downtown area, I pushed my daughter and the woman at the checkout was a teenager. Oh, sorry, not woman. She was a teenager. And she said, she said, oh, cool. Did you run here? And I said, yeah. And she said, oh, I am. She said, oh, that's so cool. You're saving money. And I was like, well, I think of saving emissions. And she was like, oh. And she clearly was like, what? like why way to make it weird um but like things like (laughs) you know like she I she was so uncomfortable but I you know planted a seed um and so it's it's conversations and um within the book I think that's what we tried to do a lot of was um show people that 
we too can't be perfect. And as Zoe said, we too have to go places like I um, I am working with the New York Marathon for their sustainability. I cannot drive 12 hours to New York um, with my my kids, with my, my life situation. But the work that I'm doing there is uh, New York, the marathon has the potential 50,000 people to make a big difference. So um, you just have to recognize that we too are struggling but it's starting somewhere. Our, our starting point might be a bit higher. We might be more conscious about things, but wherever you start, do something. Um, but the biggest thing is talk about whatever it is that you're doing. Um, you know, say I changed my toilet paper to who gives a crap instead of just buying, bount- uh, not bounty, who would it be? Charmin. Um, and so talking about those decisions. Yeah, I love the reframing point. I'm uh, sorry, so I, I, you're about to start talking there. I apologize. Because um, I feel like the reframing can be a negative, right, in that sense, where it's like, no, let's talk about this, right? Let's not reframe it away from the topic. But also there's a way of reframing it that, that can be helpful, right? I forget who said it. For some reason, I, I just tried to Google it while you were talking. It came up as like, I thought it was Arnold Schwarzenegger who said it when he was governor of California, but I feel like it was someone else. So I couldn't find the quote. But basically saying like, hey, when I wanted to talk about climate, I couldn't do that. But if I talked about litter, everyone was like, no one's pro litter, right? No one's pro trash on the ground in front of them, right? So it was like, okay, while reframing certain conversations is bad because you're taking the point away, other ways you can say, hey, maybe if I reframe it to this, I can adopt it better. What is, you know, it's just, again, that's not a question. It's just a comment, but it made me think of that. Like, hey, sometimes the reframing can be helpful because if you reframe it in a way that people can be immediately invested in where you're like, oh, are you saying you like, you like litter? Like, no, no one would say that. No one's like, hey, look at that trash on the ground. Isn't that awesome? You know, but, you know, when, when you present it in a different way, you're essentially saying the same thing, but all of a sudden it's something that people can push back on. Yeah, anyway, for sure. So you're I, about to start talking. Yeah, I think, well, A, uh, most anti-litter campaigns historically have been funded by um, beverage companies as a way of offsetting their own guilt about putting more plastic into the world. So um, that's, I think that's a really interesting test case actually is like, typically when you see guilt foisted onto individuals, if you go downstream from that, there's typically a much larger actor who is laundering their guilt through you. Um, Recycling, that is a hundred percent also a thing that was invented by plastic. like plastic industries as a way of making their waste disposal, the individual's issue in a way of laundering their culpability in environmental catastrophe through us. So anytime you feel guilty, I would always be really suspicious and really skeptical in the same way. I think we also really have to continually reassess our frameworks. I think sometimes I find folks looking for a sort of permissiveness to not change how they navigate their lives. Again, I don't need you to sail across the Atlantic, but there is no ethical consumption under our current system of capitalism. And if you think you can continue to consume and engage in these systems in the same way you always have, but like, oh, I'll just buy the, I'll buy the green, I'll buy the green pants or like I'll buy the green um, light bulb, but I'm not going to investigate the ways where I could just like consume less overall and I could divest from these systems. So it is, again, like it's sitting in that place of tension between like, I don't need you to go live off the grid. I do need you to become very skeptical of your grid and become very interested in changing your grid. And, and within your community as well, like 
so much of cutting down on things is that we all feel with Amazon, it makes it so easy. Um, I need something to, uh, you know, press my um, shirt. Okay, well, I'll order something online. Click. Rather than saying, hey, do any of my neighbors have this? Or um, seeing if, like we talk about buy nothing groups, about someone in your community might have something that you just need once or a few times a year that you could share as a communal thing. So again, it's bringing us back to work together rather than just saying, I need this right now. I'm going to click and buy it and then I'll just store it somewhere. Now, as runners, oftentimes we look at certain goals and benchmarks and times and things like that to, to set our goals. Not goals don't set goals. This is a really poorly worded question. Anyway, we have whether it's a BQ, like you mentioned before, Tina, um, you know, qualifying for a certain race or just our own personal goals that we have, um, whether it's time based or whatever, to kind of be the beacon that we're trying to get to. And now I'm just taking word right off the cert theory that you're wearing for this podcast. But um, <laughs> when it comes to the planet stuff, are there certain, you know, benchmarks that you think can be helpful? for people to think about in those same terms as just opposed to, as opposed to just merely focusing on the process. Uh, you, I know you have, you know, a whole book's worth of stats on this sort of thing, but are there certain benchmarks that maybe you think about in your own life that you try to hit um, maybe Damien Hall, like kind of like um, focus on your own kind of consumption and use and things like that. I started tracking my food waste and compost. Cause that was a really big one for me where I noticed I needed um, a lot of a lot of growth in that area. Um, and I think for me, it's less useful to have really hard, definite goals than it is to continually implement better systems for me to make better decisions that are more in line with my values. And I know that sounds like so wishy-washy, but rather than telling, like, I don't tell people I'm vegan. I tell people I try to eat in a way that aligns with my climate goals. And to a lot of people, they're going to interpret that as I mean, they can interpret that however they want, but for me, like that is the intention behind the, di the dietary decisions that I make is to be increasingly in alignment with my climate goals, which includes like being, you know, interested in human welfare as well. Things that are not always understood as being part of like a plant-based, um, diet. And I think that like being increasingly in alignment with my environmental values is a way that I assess my travel decisions and my consumptive decisions and my purchasing decisions. Yeah, I think that's very much the way that we have to approach this. Because if you say, okay, my benchmark, like you might see people on occasion say, I'm not going to use any single use plastic for the whole year of, of whatever, or I'm going to absolutely not use a, um, uh, a plastic spoon. I'm going to have a spoon with me. And I've had this experience happen where you go to get like um, frozen custard or ice cream or something. And I'll say, I don't need a spoon. And they say, okay. And then they go get my ice cream. And then I see it in slow motion, the habit coming down with the spoon. And I'm like, no. And then it's in the, in the ice cream. And I'm like, oh, I, I said no spoon. And so they're like, oh, okay. So they pick it up and throw it in the trash. And I'm like, Ah, in that case, I would have taken it. Yeah. yeah, well, that's what I mean. But then, so then, you know, had I said I'm never going to use a plastic spoon, <laughs> fail. Right. You know, like, you, it's not realistic to make these these extremes or we all find ourselves in a situation. Like, I've heard some environmentalists talk about, um, so Darren O'Lean, who did that show with Zac Efron, uh, Down to Earth on Netflix, which I loved that show. But I asked Darren about... Um, what he does when he's traveling because he's a vegan he's very strict vegan like 
absolutely no cheating. Um, and I said, what do you do when you're traveling? And he said, well, I just fast. And I was like, well, um, well, I can't do that one because running, being a woman, especially with my and Zoe's history of, of Red S. Um, and two, like that doesn't really like feel very re sustainable and realistic to just be like, there's nothing here. So I'm just not going to eat for, you know, 24 hours. Um, and so we just most of us can't do that, especially as runners when it comes to food and drink. Do you want to risk dehydration in the summer because you um you know there's no water refilling stations so i think zoe's right it's just continually questioning and even you know i've um been looking at every area of life okay so right now my obsession is bibs how can we make bibs not made of plastic and i have some some thoughts around that but like you know every, it just as you start to make these little progressions you start to look at other things in your life and so hopefully that's what we can do with the book here yeah. And I think that like so often just like definite goals tend to not benefit the planet. They tend to benefit someone else somewhere down the line because it changes like a consumption habit or it lets us off the hook or it lets us lean into a perfectionist mindset that as soon as we like slip up, we're, we're out, you know, like, oh, there goes that new year's resolution. So I think right. that right. Like, I, said, I said I was going to eat ice cream. So I guess I just have the whole pint now that I've already it, had. Exactly. <laughs> and like, I yeah. think we can all feel that way with like, with climate stuff, right? Like, well, I already drove here, like I already got in my car this week. So like, you know, why, why, like, why continue to I might as well like the styrofoam on fire. Yeah. 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 I'm already burning <laughs> trash. Um, so I think it's just about like allowing ourselves, like being so skeptical of anyone who does have that perfectionist mindset because they're, they're selling something always like they always mm -hmm. are. Speaking of that, I think they're always selling something. Um, and the things that you mentioned before about like the genesis of some of these, um, What's made to seem like solutions, but maybe aren't the best. You know, the, you talk about greenwashing in in the book. Um, it makes it even more confusing at times. Again, so you're like, okay, so like, where do I get information? So with that in mind, where does someone get information? Like unbiased. Here are some information. Maybe it's not all black and white. Here's good versus bad, right? I think this. I think of like cars, right? I'm like, okay, like I'm not going to use this car, but they get the like the electric stuff. Be like, okay, well, like they have to mine the cobalt out of these mines with like slave labor. I don't feel great about that either. Like, so am I just going to go carless? Like, I don't know. So like, so I guess my point is if people want unbiased, good information, where can they go to help them make some of these choices? Zoe, I feel like that's a... <laughs> the bad news is that, again, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. So everything we do is is bad. <laughs> but again, sitting with that tension, um, I think always looking for third party certifications and validations of things like this is a big uh, discussion with carbon offsets is not all of these are validated and not all of them actually remove carbon from the economy in a meaningful way. Waste and consumption in, in the outdoor industry, making sure that it, you, there is no anyone can use the word sustainable anyone can use the word green anyone can use the word planet friendly um it's annoying but take a deep dive whenever you're buying something look like actually into the companies like here's where we source our cotton from like polyester is inherently plastic ah you know there I, there's no ethical way to consume polyester um taking a look and making sure like fair trade certified is a great one organic cotton is a way of moving toward, again, imperfect. I have issues with the organic certification process, but moving towards more aligned 
values-based decision-making. But again, like when you can, don't buy, reuse, borrow (laughs) as much as possible. Um, Don't tell yourself you can just recycle something because that also puts carbon back into the, uh, into the system. So just always being really, really, really judicious and making sure that you do the research. And I think a lot of times it just involves clicking around on the back end of websites, but always being skeptical and honest with yourself when you feel that impulse to say, well, like, oh, like, you know, yeah, it's like, do not, you should not, everyone should not go sell their cars and get an electric car because there are carbon, (laughs) there is carbon associated with that process. Run your current car into the ground, then get an EV. Um, And always be so skeptical when someone is trying to sell you something, quote unquote, environmentally friendly, sustainable, whatever, because anytime you buy something, that is not the most sustainable thing you can be doing. I want to add one more uh, certification just for I find particularly helpful. Again, not perfect, but um, with uh, general items, um, household items particularly, uh, when you see B Corp or B Corp, uh, the big B that you might see on products, that is not perfect, but that is uh, kind of a, a benchmark that I quite often use because they undergo vigorous standards to get to that. And you can go on the B Corp website and it'll tell you what that company's rating is. But like when it comes to, you know, sunscreen or toothpaste or deodorant, uh, I have this sitting here. I thought it had the logo on it, but it doesn't. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's just like a little extra tidbit. Again, what Zoe said, do a deep dive. But also we recognize that you're not going to always have the energy to spend half an hour looking whether your deodorant is um, sustainable or not. But B Corp is kind of a quick, if you have to be quick with a decision of something that you need, like a deodorant or a toothpaste, um, looking for that logo is is a way to do it. I like that one particularly because it has an aspect of social sustainability, which I think so mm-hmm. often is left out of these conversations. Like, I don't care if your pants are made with organic cotton, if they exploit women in the process, right? Like, that's not great either if they exploit workers. Um, and I think that always just being really curious about, like, where trade-offs are and what, like, where those are occurring in the systems that you're active in um, is something you should always be paying attention to as well. Because that's that's something I see in the vegetarian side mm-hmm. of things a lot when again, like a lot of our food necessarily comes from systems that exploit human labor. And like, I'm just as interested in human thriving as I am in animal thriving and in climate thriving, because those are all the same thing. This was very helpful. I really appreciate the book, the conversation for sure. One last question for both of you before we get going, just about the process of someone who has known both of you for, for a little while now, and also who works in the media side, I guess, what's it been like going through this process of writing a book because this is a heavy, heavy lift, especially considering that you have other things going on in your lives as you were going through this process. So, Tina, I'll start with you. What was this like and what did you learn from this process? I learned there's a lot more steps than you might think. I mean, you hear it from people, don't you? You hear people say that it like sucks the life out of them. They're never going to do it again. Kind of similar, again, to running a marathon or something else. Um, but, yeah, it was it was... Um, amazing a few things one how many people are involved in the process Um, two um, I uh, got to read the audiobook a few weeks ago and you see 
when you read that, you're like, oh my God, this went through so many different people and I still see mistakes. And you, it's hard not to kick yourself of, of like, oh, why didn't Zoe or I catch that? Or like, God, that's a long run on sentence. Um, or why did Zoe put the word obfuscates in this book? And I have to now try and pronounce it. Um, <laughs> that word really tripped me up. Zoe learned Zoe... that word in third grade, to be honest. <laughs> I had never, I, I was like, obfuscates? What is obfuscate? Listen, so, listen, third grade teacher, stop trying to obfuscate. I don't Tell me when know recess is. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that process was very demoralizing at times. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really forces you to face um, every part of you. And like that inner critic is ready to pounce on you at any moment of like, well, you just aren't good at this. So I learned a lot about how to be gentle. Um, we all obviously also had to like meet in the middle because our writing styles are very different. So we had to find the overlap that worked to where it sounded like one voice rather than it being like Zoe's chapter, Tina's chapter, Zoe's chapter. Like we wanted to make it seem one voice that are combined voices. And hopefully we, we did that well. I think you did. I also think that you did a nice little middle ground choice of like having the little subsections of like Tina mm -hmm. talking about Tina and Zoe talking about Zoe. Like this is my experience with this topic that we just outlined kind of vibe. So anyway, Zoe, question to you now. Yeah. I mean, obviously it was um, really challenging, but I think the feeling that I have now that it's done um, is that the process brought me closer to myself. It brought me closer to my community. It brought me closer to my sport and it brought me closer to Tina. So I feel like we did something right because I don't know a lot of other co-authors that like we talk more now than we did when we were getting started. We are closer now. We lean on each other more now. We hold each other more accountable now. We have tough convos. We have amazing convos. We send pictures of Ryan Montgomery, you know, rocking Western states back and forth to each other. And I think that for me, having that gut check of like, did this process bring me to a better place as a person? Like I think, and I really hope that that means that the product will do the same for other people, that the book will bring them closer to themselves, closer to their community and, and closer to the, the, the people they love that activate them around this planet. All right. Last question. Tina, you already know what it is. If people want to learn more about the book, where should they go? Becoming a sustainable runner.com. Easy. Boom. There it is. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>